Okay. Okay. You ready? We are ready. ready. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain. Ooh, lived in it. Sorry. Uh, right, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Soul, mind, and body, not SpongeBob. Um, Does is that SpongeBob sadly? have a soul? I don't know. I, I, we can talk about that at the end. And it's, we can have, that can be our debate question for the end. Instead of some sort of high polluting, A level uh, philosophy question. question, we just. Does SpongeBob have a soul? Yeah. <laughs> Do TV characters have a soul in that sense? Because they have a personality. Mm. They have a devised personality. Oh, yeah. I think they're just sort of an external outworking Do of the identity? author's identity. But what if they're totally different to the author's identity? That would have to accept that some authors who write murder mysteries um, are murderers. Mm. Oh, wow, yeah. So it can't be right. I don't know. Can it? Maybe it is right. They just they do, they think about murders so much, and they think about how they can get away with them so much that they're they're just like constantly murdering people and getting away with it because they they're they're such brilliant um, murder mystery writers, and so therefore they're such brilliant murderers because they've never actually murdered anyone. That's because you would you wouldn't know they had because they're just such good. Yeah. Anyway, so mind and body. So um, we're just gonna work through the textbook as usual, and the first sort of. Uh, this heading. chapter, yeah, this chapter ahead, yeah. holistically, uh, the question we're trying to answer uh, through this podcast, I suppose, is what is your soul, what is your mind, and what is your body? How do they interact? Do they interact? Mm. Do all of them exist? Or are they one gestalt or separate parts or um, monistically, dualistic, du- dualistically, yeah. uh, in many different... Like, and how how does that fit together to make you you and how does your, identity, your everyday yeah. interactions with the world relate to your identity yeah. that's what we're trying to answer that's, that's what good. all philosophers are trying to answer in a way certainly anyone who addresses this question at all. um so yeah first heading and the matrix the matrix the matrix this is interestingly very very related to the matrix okay well, we're going to talk about that now or later? We'll talk about it later. Okay, cool. So, am I my body? That's the first um, question. Question. And I don't know. I mean, when we think about when we when we say, uh, "Am I my body?" That that sort of gives us initial hints because uh, my body sounds like something I own. You know, it's it's my, it's my house, it's my car, it's my phone, it's my body, it, it's my possession rather than me. You wouldn't say that I I am my phone. You know. Oh, that's. You could just that could just be considering that's sort of a language game you're playing there. Mm-hmm. It's just because of the grammar in our con- in in English we say, "I am um, my body." You know, "I am my body." But in another in Greek or in French or in Spanish, you wouldn't say that. You say, "I have what I have a body." So again, that's a language game and not entirely applicable because if you go back to the older languages like Latin and Greek and the derivatives, like I mentioned, of French and Spanish, you do get this separation between uh, I have your a body, identity, and, your your body, identity yeah. and you're a body, which we don't have in English, which could be an interesting reflection of how our culture's developed or mm. a random coincidence. Yeah. I mean, developing this idea of, of mm. is your identity your body, I think we can look mm. at, um, you know, I just ate... Uh, some food say I ate a lot of food a lot a lot a lot of food and I got a lot bigger you know am I does no, that change a larger person exactly am, am I more me I'm more me or maybe I suppose you could say you do have a different identity do you surely. have a different identity well yeah because you weigh more does that change, your, your, does that change who you are or just 
how people hmm. perceive you. Yeah, or, that's a good point. Yeah. Are you people's perceptions of you, or is that moving off the topic? I don't know. That's, yeah, that's an interesting thought. Are you your perception of you? I don't know. Anyway, we can discuss that again we'll at the end. We'll discuss that again at the end. Um, so, so, moving on from that. So, the next point to, quer- to query is, are you your mind then? Your consciousness, your yeah. Your consciousness, yes. So, within this sort of, we have this strange, well, I, I know I have, this is the problem of other minds. I know I have a strange experience of this. Well, I suppose I'm used to it now, but having this sort of feeling that there's a, I'm seeing things from just a point of view, just behind my eyes, you know, that's where my centre of consciousness is. Um, and, you know, that's where I feel like my thoughts exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, if I hit my hand, I can feel I have a sort of a consciousness of my hand being hit, Histori- which doesn't exist, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have a presence so much in my head and more in my hand. Well, historically, when you used to say, when you, when someone used to ask you, where do you, where do you feel, where do you, you think, what's, what's the centre of you, uh, instead of having that, feeling of like I'm thinking in my head you know mm. you can feel the thoughts in your head you'd you'd say my heart and you'd yeah. say and you'd, you'd actually be able to feel the thought in your heart so maybe it's my presuppositions so, so that we think it from our brain rather than we sort of think from our heart that's making pre- me think that I think from my brain precisely yeah. and it's just sort of again it's this uh language game that we've presented that is your thoughts are in, uh are inhabited in your brain so yeah. we perceive thoughts to occur in our brain, and if we think too hard, we get an ache in our brain, and yet that wasn't always the case. It mm. used to be that ache would be in your heart from consciousness. Do you think? Um, I think so because I think I it, think you probably should have got a headache if you thought too hard. Perhaps you would have got a headache if you thought too hard, but I think ultimately it's that perception of thoughts coming from the heart instead of thoughts coming from the head, and your head being a sort mm. of a superfluous sensory organ, yeah, sort of like your hands. So again. That's just a perception that's not... I'd still argue, though, because you see through your eyes. Yeah. It feels... At least to feel, it feels to me like my consciousness is sort of just behind my eyes. Or I don't know. That's precisely it. It feels to you that your consciousness is behind your eyes. But it may feel to me that it's behind my left mm. ear or, yeah. or my right <laughs> finger. Yeah. So I don't think that your consciousness... You can perceive the location of your consciousness within your body. And that then... Makes the question. I mean, biologically, we know that our con- that what makes us conscious is our cerebral cortex, is the front portion of our brain. Mm-hmm. Hence, your assumption that you can feel, in inverted commas, your uh, thoughts in your cerebral cortex. Yeah. But yet, that is just a perception, as we can know historically from different previous perceptions of where thoughts came from. So, in the end, what do we say? Your con- is your consciousness there is, is or is it just our our current lack of understanding of biology mm-hmm. leads us to the uh mis misinformed conclusion that our consciousness is in our cerebral cortex yeah um i guess let's just try and go back to the question a little bit about am i my consciousness mm-hmm. you know that's the so i think we've done quite well on discussing sort of the what body. is our consciousness mm-hmm. and how do we experience it mm-hmm. but am i my consciousness you know, the example that the textbooks gives is um, if you look at yourself, uh, actually there's a baby photo of you just over there, Arthur, I think. Yes. You look at little baby Arthur and you're like, oh, it's Arthur. But is it Arthur? Because in terms of consciousness, baby Arthur wasn't conscious. It, baby Arthur was just an unconscious 
Well, yeah, he certainly wasn't conscious in the way that we'd understand it. Um, no. Self-aware and so forth. And if you want to talk about biological mass, my brain is not the same as it was back then, but mm. physically, yeah. in terms of matter, everything in my brain is completely different now. To now yeah, was I was going back to my body as well. I was well, a yeah. child. So my consciousness has developed while also not being in the same physical constraints. So is your consciousness then beyond you, the physical constraints of your body because the physical constraints of your body have fallen away. A new one, a new cage has been created, to use the metaphor, for your consciousness. So your consciousness is then beyond the matter of your body. Hmm. But, I mean, is it? Because it feels Mm -hmm. like when you you do bodily things, for example, like sleeping, Mm -hmm. and that that influences your consciousness. Your consciousness, certainly your conscious awareness of yourself, Mm -hmm. switches off when you sleep. And I think if you take your identity mm-hmm. from I am a conscious being, that is who I am, mm-hmm. it seems like you lose your identity when you sleep. Because when you go to sleep, you are no longer... No. Is, is, no, is no, it no, your no, ontology? No. Hold is on, it your on. function, I think? This is the hold distinction on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I think what we have to say there is, does your consciousness stop? Or does your perception of your consciousness mm, fade? Yeah. Because you could still be conscious. Like, you're still conscious within dreams to an extent you just have no recollection yeah, of consciousness good point, good point. and more than that you have your consciousness um it's just your body is unable to experience e- experience it. your consciousness and you're unable to present your consciousness to others because your body the master in your body is unable to mm. contain it at interact certain with the material points world, yeah. interact with it your consciousness can't interact with the material world yeah but then again if we take it back to the example of a baby a baby does not have a consciousness it does, does it's it? just well this well in my example of your matter being unable the matter of your body being unable to present your consciousness it's the same thing. It's your the baby has a full fledged consciousness. Does it? I don't think. I don't well, think no, no, no. That baby's self aware. I don't think. Well, they well are. from this idea, if the baby, the baby, the matter of the baby, the baby's brain, the baby's organs, the baby's body, is too small to enclose fully its consciousness, so it cannot experience its consciousness. Yet its consciousness is still there, waiting for the body, the matter, to grow, to be able to encompass more of it. So your ba- brain expands. So that more of your consciousness can be expressed through the matter of your body. And whether that's true or not, I don't mm. know. But Yeah, that... because what I'd say to that is, well, you know, there's no guarantee that your consciousness always exists. It could be something that develops over time, like your body develops over time. So it's not like your consciousness is always like moving into your body as it develops. Your consciousness is developing with your body. If well, you look at it from a purely materialistic point of view... And our consciousness is just a, a byproduct of our like very complex, exactly like Richard Dawkins. Our consciousness is just a very um, a, com- a byproduct of our very complex brain. Um, it, it would seem that it's not something that always exists. It's not an eternal thing, and we'll get onto this with souls. But it's not sort of an eternal thing. It's a um, something that develops with us, uh, rather than us sort of it, us growing into it. If you see what I mean. Well, if I take, I think. Aristotle would be interesting to note here because he does have an idea of souls. And if you remember back to last episode, we talked about his idea of uh, everything is empirical and you have no eternal aspects to your soul and yet your soul does exist. Your soul is a, is, a, is your consciousness outside your body uh, and, and a way to experience the world through that consciousness. And he says we have this higher form of consciousness than other beings as we're able to have this reason and intellect. And this consciousness 
is expressed through your body but not solely contained in your body. However, he also argues that when your body dies, it's unable your soul is unable to function without mm. your body and so therefore perishes along with it. I think so you're it, not so not an immortal soul, but still a fully formed consciousness that's not quite that, constrained that cannot, to your body. That's not fully constrained to your body and your body is merely a reflection built around that consciousness. I think it would be good to talk about NDEs here, near death experiences. Because there's a lot of... I, I found this quite interesting looking into it myself. There's quite a few quite amazing accounts of people who've, you know, been medically dead. You know, they're, they're dead on an operating table or, or whatever. And they, they just... Then they're revived through, you know, defibrillator or whatever it is. I suppose that's what they'd use. Um, and they recount these tales of their consciousness leaving their body. You know, they go up into the sort of the top of the operating room and they look down on their dead body on this slab... And they have a little wander round. And then there's stories of people who've sort of... Um, the one that sticks in my mind is somebody... Uh, they they were sort of dead, in inverted commas, because obviously they got brought back to life. But they, you know, no brain functions, that sort of thing. Um, and yet they had this conscious experience, or thought they had a conscious experience, where they saw a shoe on top of the hospital roof. And when they were revived and, and woke up, I suppose, their consciousness returned back inside their material body. They told the people at the hospital about this shoe on the roof that they'd seen. And the people went up on the roof and lo and behold, there was a shoe as they described it. And it seemed like a very strange thing to try and explain away naturalistically that this person could have, uh, you know, had this very strange experience that seems to have been not some sort of um, product of your brain having low low oxygen and hallucinating, but something that actually experienced the the real world, but external from your material body. Well, that does not necessarily lead us to any conclusions about a soul or a, or a eternal soul, at least, and can still mm. fall under the category of your conscious of consciousness yeah. tied to your body. And as your con- as your body dies, your consciousness fades, and. But I don't think they, they experienced a fading consciousness. They more experienced a moving consciousness. Is it? Well, a moving consciousness, but not... But then the majority of experiences, because I was looking it up mm-hmm. uh, under your recommendation uh, yeah. in, medical, in medical journals, and the majority of experiences were of this terrifying, terrifying experience of a near-death experience where your consciousness begins to fade into, into a, either a light or a dark uh, sort of abyss uh, encompassing you. And the more you you remain, the less you remember. The less they remember, the longer they were dead, and they, only the early parts of that conscious conscious uh, yeah. come back to them when they're revived. So, so you could talk about the that again. That would bring us back to the Aristelian idea of a soul. Yeah, that just dies as you, mm-hmm. um, as your material body dies. All right, yes. let's, let's let's move on to the um, the mind body question, which is the third heading. Um, and I mean, this is, I think we can go over this quite quickly. It's just sort of the question of how, um, how if, if our consciousness is some sort of separate thing to our body, which we've established isn't any sort of certain thing, how, how would it interact with our body? Because when you, um, when you cut your, well, when you, I don't cut myself open, when doctors dissect people or whatever, um, you don't really find some sort of, uh, spiritual, area of your body do you know what i mean it, it's not it's, it's very much like if if you believe in it in a sort of a, a spiritual soul-like consciousness you know there's no sort of way that, that that we can or that we know of that it links to the material world and so so it asks the question how how does this sort of if if you cut me do i not bleed 
if you cut me, do I not bleed? Is my, am I not human? That's what, uh, that's sort of a expression of I'm human. You know, if you cut me, do I not bleed? I'm still human. So, uh, that that seems to suggest that blood is, uh, at least culturally, seen as an indication of being, of still being human and a thing that connects all people, regardless of anything to do anything. Anything to do with your consciousness or or your perceptions or anything about any person that separates them physically, everyone still has blood and their blood is essentially identical, at least in appearance. And so culturally we've developed this idea of of blood being sort of lifeblood and it's, it's also explored in the Bible as blood being sacred. Yeah. Uh as like a expression of what what makes you human, what makes you special is your the human blood and so with the mind body question you could say that at least in the bible and through our culture we seem to experience that your blood is more than just a, a biological function keeping mm. you alive but a reflection of the state of your of something greater of your soul and that's interesting and even in animals that's why in the old testament god forbade the israelites from eating animal that they had not drained the blood out of fully because that blood was sacred, uh, at least at least according to the Bible, it was sacred because mm. it was um, sacred to God. It had a reflection of God's creation in it, and so you could say the blood is when you cut a person, when a doctor cuts someone up, the blood is actually a reflection of something greater than purely their biological parts. Mm. But I, I mean, I'd still you, you. I suppose eventually you do lose consciousness if you lose enough blood. <laughs> Um, but I, I don't know. Yes. I mean, is is it like your? I don't think you think you'd say your consciousness drains out of you as you lose blood. You know, as long it, as you also your experience blood, of it, blood, it does. Blood it does. It does as your experience is. If if you're bleeding, the more you bleed, the more you begin to lose consciousness. No, but what I say out. is, so you do. So you've got a hole in your, in one side of you. There's blood's pouring out. And yeah. You've got you've got a load of needles on the other side. Blood blood coming in from blood transfusions. Yeah. Right. Now that blood isn't your blood. It's somebody else's blood. So are you having your somebody else's conscious transfused into you while your uh, own conscious pours out? I think this out? is. I think this is where we more talk about the idea of a soul and the idea of a a shed. This this goes into more of a religious uh, idea because remember this idea of sacred blood is purely biblical and so uh, you can talk about the blood being the lifeblood of creation or what god created the well in the bible it talks about blood being the the thing that created all people the thing that links and unites all of god's creation humans and animals and everything it is blood that it's, it's sort of the blood of life mm-hmm. and so uh, any sort of blood is is, is but, inherently has god's creation as a soul of goodness within it so i don't think it, do insects have blood in a way, I thought they they it just they the, didn't, they, the oxygen they, diffuses they directly diffuses to their cells. Cells, so perhaps perhaps the blood is more right. of a metaphor. Perhaps the blood is more of a metaphor for something else. I'm not sure. Or animals or insects weren't part of God's creation. It makes mm. sense. I'm not a fan of mosquitoes. Yeah, but they are an integral part of the food chain. Anyway, um, we should we should move on to um, the question of is the soul a thing? Because obviously we've already talked about it a bit. That's a lot. Um, and there's, there's a good quote that I underline in the textbook. Um, it says, uh, Some philosophers argue that to refer to the soul is not to name some special substance, but to draw our attention to the spiritual aspect of the whole person. And what that says to me is, are we, are we misdiagnosing the soul as a thing? We're saying soul as a noun rather than soul as in, as in a function, a verb, <laughs> you know? Um, through... through um, when when we speak of our souls and we think, 
of it as some sort of separate substance to ourselves, a spiritual substance, you could say. Is that correct? Or should we be thinking of it more as um, a spiritual function? I used, we were talking about this earlier, I used the, um, the metaphor of like a spiritual antenna. So it, it's more of, it's, it's the way that you, oh no, maybe, maybe that makes it sound like more of a noun though, doesn't it really? I think, I think what they're talking about when they say uh, an ability, the soul is a substance to draw the attention to a spiritual aspect of a whole person. I think what they're referring to there is to say, is to say that one should not limit humans to to that of only their part, the sum of their parts. Because again, if we limit humans to some of their parts, it is wrong to say that humans have any sort of purpose or meaning. Just because mm. the parts of them, just oh, because yeah, your yeah. lungs and body What's have the fallacy any meaning, of composition, yeah. yeah, which links into the fallacy of composition. So, the soul is almost an excuse to allow philosophers to to unpack these ideas because the soul is, in a sense, the sum of your parts. It, it, it's the thing that's more than some of your parts. It's the mm. thing that allows you to experience, allows you to have this idea of meaning and purpose in life. And I think what that quote's referring to more than any sort of physical or spiritual being it's more of just a a purposive idea that humans have meaning and purpose in life and that is through the idea of something greater than what you are mm. i.e. your soul we just sort of and we use and that as sort of just a placeholder for yeah. that thing it's it's a name with no meaning it's like dark matter it's a it's a name it's a placeholder for a, something a thing we don't understand, that we don't understand. yeah or I've never even observed. Mm. And yet we know it must exist. Well, we don't know it must exist. Well, I mean, well, dark, we mass, dark, dark matter, we don't know it must exist. We know that something out there must be, uh, there must be something else out there more than just matter. So we've given it this name, dark matter. We don't know. Because mm. scientists don't really want to just say something we don't understand yet. We have to call it like, like we don't Yeah, we have to give it a name. And it's exactly <laughs> the same with philosophers. Yeah, and I soul. agree. Yeah, it's very true, very we true. We don't know what it is. And we don't know if it even exists in this we case. But again, Wittgenstein would, uh, make a point would would note here about language games and he would say uh well we've commonly accepted this idea that there is a thing called the soul and to our language in our language game the soul is a reference to something we don't understand beyond some of our parts mm. and then we've just sort of colloquialized it so much we almost forgot that that is the meaning of a soul at least to at least in a secular sense yeah so a soul is more uh <laughs> It's something that gives value rather than any sort of, uh, or yeah, it's almost like a passive part of your identity rather than an active part. Yeah, you know, it just passively I am valuable rather than actively I'm experiencing the spiritual world or something like that. Um, but then, uh, but then there's that quote, uh, Wayne Wayne Dyer, Wayne Dyer, the quote, "I am not that which is noticed." I am the noticer, which I think is relevant to bring up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's notable because what's that's what that ref- is referring to is you are actually your soul is passive, and yet your soul is the only part of you with any meaning. Your soul is the noticer. Yeah. You notice your body moving. You notice your mind thinking of things. Like I'm noticing my mind uh, develop these concepts, and then I'm noticing my voice uh, bring them to fruition verbally. And yet, I'm not doing any of that. I'm merely noticing mm. that through my passive occupation of matter, so, which is which is I am the soul that is passively no, 
no experiencing the world through yeah. this vessel. So we're almost just on sort of a roller coaster ride, you know. We're just mm. sitting in our on our roller coaster car, which is our body and our mind as uh-huh. us, as a, as 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 souls. That's what we're doing, and we're just watching the. Just experiencing the roller coaster of life. Wow, I sound and so yet, cliched. But anyway, and ethically, <laughs> and yet ethically, this is this is dangerous. This is mm, a dangerous path to move down because it, it removes responsibility from anything material. So it removes any responsibility for murder or famine or anyth- anything we would commonly uh, consider to be a crime or to be sinful uh, in our culture would would have no inherent negative value because. We are the noticer. We are not what is noticed. Mm. And so we have no responsibility for the actions of the matter on the world. And yet, since... But yet, I think that's oversimplifying this quote. quote yeah. Because I think... Maybe. No, because I think since your soul is able to notice the pain and suffering of those things in the world, we, while passive in our watching of these things, we do have an active role in... Well, I suppose we I, I have a responsibility. This, this quote doesn't say that just because you're, you're it doesn't say you're, you're uh, the noticer can't do anything. Yes. You know? if, if I notice in in the real world someone, I don't know, struggling. St- yeah, struggling exactly. That that doesn't that doesn't mean I'm not just staring at them like, oh, that person's struggling. How sad. And you move you on. Tell, yeah. No, you, you you I mean you hope that you'd go and do help. something about it. So exactly. I think you, you, while. We, we, I get what you're saying, and I, and I agree with you to an extent that it could be quite dangerous uh, ethically because you're just like, well, I was just watching myself kill that person. I was just watching myself, I don't know, what... what uh, Various other... Steal, steal that, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it all, almost removes the responsibility. I think that maybe we're taking this quote too far and just saying that the noticer has no sort of sovereignty over their own... The, the vessel that they're I mean if, if I mean if you go back to the roller coaster car analogy yeah. you can stick your your leg or out. arm out but does that influence the roller coaster you, car well if someone else is falling off the roller coaster you, you can, can pull catch them back them. on yeah so I don't yeah, know that might be stretching the yeah we are stretching the metaphor <laughs> <laughs> now here's a question is your soul didactic in any way didactic I don't remember what that means oh didactic just means does it have a? Is there a purpose to your soul? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Is didactic. Your soul didactic? I, yeah, that makes sense. Purpose to our soul. Is I it... mean, what we were saying before, it almost seems as if the soul's ex- purpose is to give us some sort purpose. of purpose and value. Yeah. Um, so, in that sense, it's almost circular. I have purpose because my the thing soul that has purpose. Pu- gives me no. And I, I, so you, you know, you give the soul purpose. The purpose of the soul is to give you purpose, and because you yeah, have purpose, it's not and you quite can give cir- it's not circular when you think of it in the correct uh, correct interpretation. <laughs> yes, yeah. because the soul you don't give the soul purpose. The soul has purpose external. To We're any- assuming the soul exists. If yeah, the soul sorry. doesn't exist, then we are just making this social construct of a soul that gives humans We're giving purpose. It, yeah, then it's circular. Then it assuming circular. that the soul is something beyond the material uh, existence, then the soul has a meaning beyond anything within the universe, external to the universe, and so it has meaning inherent to it that we do not understand. Mm. But that certainly doesn't, so, that doesn't prove the existence of a soul by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't prove the existence, but it does undermine the idea it's a circular argument in any so much as it's not a human construct. Well, I mean, it it's depends if it exists or not. If, if it exists, then it's... 
not a human construct. If it do- well, if it doesn't, if it doesn't literally exist, then it is a human construct. It and only it exists so far as a construct. And, and if we try and say so. the soul exists because it gives me purpose, no, that's just that sort of mistake. This is the mistake that um, Plato makes when he talks about um, talks about the forms and 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 or things like beauty or, or goodness. Well, move on to what Plato Do- talks about the soul. Then, what well, Plato- uh, yeah, I'll, I'll use this to sort of go into it. Um, he talks about how, um, you know, because we, well, he assumes because we have these nouns for things like beauty uh, and goodness, that those things really exist. And so he assumes there's a form of beauty and a form of goodness. But that's not necessarily true because that we have nouns for things that most certainly don't exist. Unicorns don't exist. And yet we have a, a noun um, a noun for unicorn. Um and so it would seem strange to assume that just because there's a word for soul, that the soul itself has to exist, and it's not just an idea that we thought of. Um, but yeah, moving on to Plato. So um, he had quite, um, I suppose, a harsh dualistic understanding of of um, uh, of the soul, of the mind-body question, I suppose, or soul-body maybe he would prefer, although he's Greek, so probably something else that I don't know how to say, um, <laughs> since I don't speak Greek. Um, That's Greek to you, is it? It is Greek to me. Um, but he, uh, he, I think we've discussed, we have discussed this previously about how he thought, you know, soul, good, it's from the forms, body, bad, prison, we must escape the body and get, um, get our soul to be freed from all the vices and terrible um, lusts of the body and then sort of be uh, enlightened. <laughs> Plato um, was the f- he was the first to come up with the idea of a soul. No one really. No one thought of a soul before Plato. Plato. You sure? Yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. I, I'm sure. Sorry, you can't see me nod. Yeah. <laughs> Just remembering that. Uh, so Plato devised a soul in almost as a contingent for the idea of his forms to give the forms meaning and to give him meaning through the forms. He used it as sort of a vessel between him and this beautiful world because he created this wonderful imagery of the forms and then he needed a way to bring himself into it and so the soul was his gateway Hmm. but you know for example the ancient egyptians who were around hundreds if not thousands of years before plato had something they had an understanding of some sort of spiritual realm they had gods they had they had gods yes but did they think they had a connection? Well, they thought to there was an afterlife. You know, you see that the modified bodies. I mean, I'm not an expert on Egyptology, but, but then you have the to whole say, thing of preparing people for the afterlife. Uh, yes, yes, yes. What did they do? They prepared people for the afterlife. They uh, preserved their organs. They preserved their brain, and they they sent money and things with them, and all these values. Why? Because they thought that those things that exist in the material world mm. exist also in the afterlife. It was Plato yeah, who first said... There's a spiritual mm, realm, yeah, I see Perhaps what nothing in the material world exists beyond the material world, and yet there is a world beyond the material world which, in some part, in some way, inhabits this world through us, mm. i.e. the soul. Yeah, now, going back to what we were talking before about um, how the, the sort of the, 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 con- the, um, the spirit... The spiritual aspect of you interacts with the physical aspect of you. This is an issue for Plato too, with his sort of very harsh substance dualism. That's the term that you use to describe when you believe that there's like a, a physical and a spiritual, you know, two substances, dual, right? Substance dualism. Um, and the issue is how does this um, spiritual part of you interact with the physical part of you? You know, 
we kind of we understand to an extent how the physical interacts with the physical how does our brain tell our um our my fingers to move or whatever it is it's through sending electrical signals through the synapses um and that's what gcse biology understanding of it but still we have a, a, a kind of idea of how that will work but plato doesn't really give any explanation about how our, our soul interacts with our body you know, he just says, he well, does, the he body's does, a prison. He, he does give does us he? an interaction, which you were just about to come on to, yet denying its No, he's, existence. he doesn't, he doesn't he says say it, how. He, he says this is how it is, but he doesn't say, he doesn't say that this is that, how that, it works. That he is says, its interaction. He says, the soul is a reflection of your true self mm-hmm. from the forms. Your soul experiences this world through the cage that is your material body. And as your material body it decays, it your soul is able to leave. It doesn't say how our soul interacts with the body, though. It, does, it doesn't provide an, an explanation like your it does. Remember the learning. passes through the sign. Remember learning and learning remembering. Is remembering. Yes, it's that idea that your soul is experienced through your consciousness. So when you learn, when you think... But he doesn't, you it doesn't say reasoning. there's a part of your brain that, that had that your no. consciousness had it. He doesn't, accept, he doesn't go into this sort of biological level... Of understanding of the brain because there was no there was no biological mm. understanding of the brain to this extent back then, he merely says, "We have consciousness, right? That consciousness is our soul, sort of intermingled with our material body, and those thoughts that are of a higher order to him, so reason, rationale, mathematics, they were reflections of the true thoughts and understandings of your soul." While emotions and the passions, they, they, they were the perversions of your soul by your material body, and that they interacted in this sort of struggle between higher think, higher order thinking, and lower, uh, the lower pa- the lower emotions and the passions, and the soul was sort of caught, wanting to escape into this idea of perfection and the forms, and yet held down by the body in these. And how the body sort of corrupting the soul almost, and yet unable to affect it fully. I think I think the issue is we're getting confused between the what and the how. We're describing a lot of what. What does the soul do? What does the soul experience? We're not ex- just ex- does anyone say how. how? Does anyone say how? Well, I don't know. It, it, it's irrelevant. Plato doesn't say how. Plato doesn't. But I don't think that is a reasonable criticism because I no, think I think if I think we're talking unreason- bio- biological terms, we know how the brain causes. Uh, we don't know how the soul. I don't think it's. I think it's. Yeah, but, I but, think it's but unreason- that purely natural, a purely naturalistic understanding of the universe doesn't need to explain the soul because it doesn't think it exists. But then there's no point to any of this. Well, no, it's quite fun. <laughs> no, but no, but the point, the point is <laughs> to accept the idea that a soul exists. It is, uh, it is sort of unfair or at least irrational to assume that those who accept the idea of a soul and and try and disseminate the meaning of a soul to also expect them to devise a sort of biological understanding of the soul, because the mm. soul in itself is so beyond and removed from anything biological or anything we're able to d- discern from empirically that, the, that it's irrational to assume that we can give the soul a, a how, is used in both yeah, commas. Yeah, yeah, Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's like, it's just it, something that we've got to... It's not we reasonable. empirically... Does, yeah, sort of you experience can, it because it's not material. You can use the scientific method to figure out what's going on in your brain physically, mm, yeah. but to expect something that works purely on empirical senses to be able to... to under, so something to, immaterial. That yeah, yeah, to yeah. be able to sort of lay out the machinations of things beyond 
even our wildest understanding that yeah. we can only clutch at in sort of wisps with the tailcoats of anything spiritual mm. it's it's completely unreasonable to accept yeah to expect I, I get what you're saying yeah someone yeah. in 340 324 bc to do that yeah let alone someone today i still think that you can that from a naturalistic perspective you can make a sort of criticism of 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 the understanding of, of a soul existing because well you're just you know you're not you're saying this thing exists and you're not justifying a lot of the how behind it oh how it interacts for sure and that and uh bf skinner here is an is a behavioral uh psychologist because mm-hmm. he's the one that um uh he's really really uh interest he's really interesting he's uh, well known for the study of Pavlov's dogs, right. which pro- most people probably know, that experiment where he trained behavioural... He trained behaviour of dogs by every time he gave them food, he rang a bell. Mm. And so then, once he did that for long enough, eventually he'd be able to ring the bell and extract a physical reaction from the dogs. Uh, regardless sort of, if there was food or not. Regardless if there was food or not, of uh, expecting sort of you know, saliva and hunger. yeah. yeah. And then he then extends that, uh, rationally or irrationally, to humans and yeah. say, we are merely a pattern of learned behaviours. So mm. everything we do is a learned behaviour and you could train it. And humans are almost like a simplified computer chip. That I see start... you say it's an overcomplicated computer or over... chip. No, 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 or just purely a blank page of code. Mm. And you can code in things and then we, we've learned those things. And those yeah. things are able to interact. That certainly seems like to obs- how... Obsificate. Uh, obs- ob- obs- I can't pronounce it. Sorry. To hide yeah. <laughs> uh, the simplicity of human behavioralism. Yeah. I, I think that, that fits quite well with how we learn things, at least uh, as far as I understand, mm-hmm. because it, it's all about, you know, you, your synapses, the, the, path, the, path, the passages in your brain, right? You do the same sort uh-huh. of... Uh, if you when you revise things, you're you're mm-hmm. strengthening those connections. You, connections are built between sort of themes and I mm-hmm. I don't know ideas inside your brain. I'm probably if anyone understands biology, they're probably cringing at me right now. But the idea that we have to um, the re- repeated um, experiences form uh, like <coughs> stronger connections in your brain, Sorry. and and so this would fit in with this theory of behaviorism because we just, the dogs have had this repeated experience of the mm-hmm. bell being rang when food's around. That creates a connection in the brain between the bell sound and the food. And mm. what, why not extend that to humans? And it seems that from my understanding of how humans learn, that would make sense because, you know, we learn that the school bell means break, right? Mm. Or whatever it is. Um, but do we learn, we learn that, but then I think it's wrong to say that we have no self-awareness that that is a learned pattern within us. Because yeah, that's a good distinction. I think, as um, Daniel C. Dennett points out uh, notably on this, this idea of behaviourism, while applicable to pigeons, is not reasonable to extend the same rationale mm. of pigeons' learned behaviour to that of the complexities of human brain. Yeah. And so, uh, and so yeah, because what is... To say that I learn to go to dinner when the dinner bell's rung, right, is not to say that I'm not conscious that that is something that I'm doing. Mm, I'm saying I'm choosing to go down 
because I've learned the meaning of this. Not that yeah, you just subconsciously suddenly go into this trance when you hear the dinner bell rang, and you just rush to the table and and salvating everywhere well, like more, a dog would. Well, more than that, it's <laughs> if you ring that bell, I'm making the conscious action to say I know what that bell means and going dinner, and, and, yeah. and acting on it. Not that bell has given me meaning mm. that I then act on. It's I have given the bell meaning, which yes, I choose to yes, act on. Do you, do you yeah, see yeah, that, that distinction between yeah. them? And, so and obviously that only applies to beings that are sentient. So a dog, assuming they're not sentient, as in self-aware, is just so like... cannot make that distinction. Exactly, they can't make the distinction. And so I think importantly about this, this does lead us to a big criticism of materialism, which yeah. is how can, you expect biolog- how can you expect the complexities of the human mind and these near-death experiences and all these things to be contained purely within an empirical, purely from an empirical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could just say, well, the brain's just really, 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 really complicated and and almost like appeal to a mystery, you know. We don't understand the brain enough. So we're just going to, like, slap the example, the, 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 sorry, the explanation of, well, the brain's too complex to understand. It has some mysterious stuff in it. We have faith that the brain provides us with sentience. Like a, a religious person might say, well, we have faith that God exists. It's a similar well, bring, thing. Bring back to Richard Dawkins here. Richard Dawkins has said, famous, quite famously, that... While science does not have all the answers, it will have mm, all the answers. Yeah. And he's a Big strong strong believer that I have faith... The idea that, in inverted commas, I have faith in mm, science yeah. is that I have faith that all questions that philosophy is able to ask will be explained fully by a greater understanding of our world around us empirically. Interesting, yeah. Um, and yet, and that, that would answer the materialistic, the material answer that there is no soul and it's merely our consciousness contained within our uh it's contained within our cerebral cortex yeah sure but we're, we're way off there and it is it is definitely a faith position saying it is a faith based position because there is no the only evidence to the only evidence to say that we will eventually get there is the human progression we've had already and the assumption that we will continue to be able to disseminate all things through that method I think ultimately we will, but not humans. I think we'll be able to understand almost everything, but the one thing that will always remain a mystery to us is ourselves, because I do mm. not think we are entirely of yeah. this world. Obviously, that's your presuppositions shining through. That's my understanding. It makes sense, yeah. And, um, anyway, let's bring, it, let's bring it back to um, finish off on Plato, because there's a little bit in the textbook about um, the distinction between a, sort of a, a Christian understanding of, of the soul and Plato's understanding. Um, you know, there have been some quite famous Christian substance dualists like um, Descartes, who I think, yes, we are coming on to Descartes um, in this in this episode. But Plato, um, unlike I, I think most Christians, would would be very disparaging of the physical world. Um, you know, it, 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 there's nothing really good about it. Um, similar similar to the Manichaeans, who were a Christian sect, mm. uh, Prevalent around the same, heretics, I think. But. Prevalent around the same time as Plato, interestingly. Well, no, after. I oh, mean, slightly after, but not but very well. I think it was like two, five. It was, it was Augustine's, that's 400 AD, 400 so 800 AD. years but after. 800 years after Plato. Relatively, yeah. Relative to nowadays, it was yeah, yeah, much, yeah. much closer. And they held the belief that there was no value in material, uh, material existence. Mm. And everything material was an aberration. And the only true way to to grow in the understanding of faith was to 
abstain from anything material. Exactly. Just like with Plato, the only true way to, to access the forms is through meditation and denial of, of the flesh. And so it does bleed through in Christianity a bit, but I think we have to say Christianity isn't so black and white on material bad and spiritual good. Also, another interesting point that the textbook makes on this is that um, that uh, Plato seems to assume the soul is eternal, but most Christians believe a soul actually comes into existence um, the, at the point of conception or, or sometime around then, right? Um, and also, Plato suggests that the soul cannot be destroyed, whereas um, I think a, a, a large number of Christians would say, that no, that sort of denies God's omnipotence. Because if if God's all powerful, why shouldn't He be able to destroy souls? And it also, I mean, this li- links to eschatology as well. I mean, we're going off. What happens bit, after? Yeah, we? exactly. Yeah, what, what like after, basically what happens when we die? So we're moving on to a tangent here. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll I'll, I'll be I'll be quick. Some Christians think that that um some people go to heaven and some people just cease to exist, and so that would link into the idea that souls aren't eternal and they can come out of existence. Um. Mm. And yet, I think we have to accept that Plato, Plato's idea of substance dualism has been heavily influential on Christianity course, yeah. because it was Jesus in his life never once mentioned the idea of a soul. He mentioned being, being reborn with the Father, being reborn. Mm. Uh, it, it was only Paul who started to talk about the idea of a soul and the idea of there being a dualism there. And he was heavily influenced by Plato's writings. Now, I'd also like to point out... That uh, from my personal understanding of this, uh, this this the material world is uh, an aberration, and uh, mm. the spiritual world is the only pure world. I think that's perfectly countered by the idea of Jesus's incarnation. Yeah, so it for does sure. say in the Bible, Jesus Jesus ate fish with the uh, yeah. with the four thousand. He ate with people. He spoke with people. He touched people. Yeah, he and you have, you have Thomas feeling his wounds after he's been resurrected. That sort of thing. And so he he interacted with the physical world, and this idea is this, it's God, His purely goodness. Yeah. How can the purely something purely good inhabit something purely bad? There must be some overlap. They ca- they cannot be mutually independent. There must be some overlap to which God can exploit to mm. um, interact with us personally through Jesus. Sure. Um, so let's move on to Aristotle. Uh, we talked about it was last episode, yeah. This last episode we talked about Aristotle. We have talked about Aristotle. Um, but this could be about We've already humans about Aristotle and Aristotle and the soul. We talked about how his. I don't think we've talked about how for for Aristotle the soul is the formal cause of you humans. Could, you could expand on that. Yes. Yeah. So so Aristotle has quite a different understanding. Well, a very different understanding of the of the soul um, than Plato. He sees it as more. Uh, like the we going back to what the formal cause is, it's the shape of something essentially. So the shape of this table is what makes it a table and not a, uh, I don't know, a wooden bench, for instance. Um, the soul is what makes the soul shapes the body around us. To yeah, the... it, it's what makes us not just our material cause, the our bones, our blood, our mm-hmm. teeth, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So like, yeah, Aristotle did think that the soul was not immortal. He didn't think it was eternal. He thought it died mm. with us. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say that when this table is destroyed, its form is also destroyed. So again, it, it, it's it's almost an entirely different concept. It's almost, I don't I don't know if there, is the soul even an applicable word to use here, or are we just trying to make it fit with our worldview? You know, it, it's like his understanding of a soul is very very different to sort of what we would think of it as today. Much more. No. 
You think? I mean, it, it no, gives it's identity something that in a gives us purpose way. and identity. A soul. Mm. Going back yeah, to the idea point. of a philosophical idea of a soul is something bigger than the sum of our parts, and something yeah. that forms the sum of our parts, and that is what Aristotle's talking about. Yeah. More interestingly, I think, is Aquinas's. Uh, reuptake of the Aristotelian idea of a soul and his sort of, the way he merges it uh, almost symbiotically into Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you want me to expand on that? Or you just yeah, yeah, yeah. Cliffhanger, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That's... So, so um, Aristotle, uh, Aristotle leaves this legacy for Aquinas to pick up and Aquinas picks it up in a sort of, on an, an interesting take of the material and the formal cause, because he also um, sort of he also sort of says that there's this the soul is a function of the body. It's the function that gives life to uh, the inanimate. The, the soul is what animates the inanimate. It gives yeah. the body a it gives the body a consciousness and a life and and the ability to think and reason. Uh, he to quote him he says. Therefore, the soul, uh, which is the first principle of life, is not a body, but the act of a body, uh, from the Summa Theologica. And what this is saying is the the soul is an act of the body. It's a a function which gives life to the body. And later he goes on to say that um, just as it belongs to the notion of this particular man to be composed of this soul, of this flesh, and of these bones so it belongs to the whole notion of the man to be composed of soul flesh and bones so what this again is saying is that the soul is part of who you are there's not this dualism there's not this nature that the soul is inhabiting your body but separate to it sort of like renting a house it's the idea that you're part of your the soul is just just another brick in the wall yeah yeah i was going to say the exact same it's um (laughs) it's part of the house it's one of the building blocks that builds the foundation to which your body is built upon to which your life is built upon and so this is quite interesting as a christian Uh, yeah yeah you can turn the page (laughs) it's quite (laughs) it's quite interesting as a christian notion i think because uh what's that then saying it's saying that um the part of you that's connected to god is also fully part of the material world yeah so what the material world is fully connected to god he denies this idea that paul and plato not seemingly denies this idea that paul and plato come up with that is this it is the soul that returns to god but focuses on jesus's teachings that you will be reborn um Mm. as the new creation and that your soul being part of this material world is the thing that brings life to you being reborn in the new creation yeah, I mean, I don't think can, I don't think you have to say that it's um, that the soul is is sort of uh, it, it exists in the material, like it is the only thing that branches between the material. You could say that the body as a whole. I think we're being too we're making too much of a distinction between the soul, the, the sort of the spiritual soul and the material body. I think um, that um, Aquinas want you to look at it as one as one. Mm-hmm. What what's the word um, between? It's in the, the, the middle of the Venn diagram between physical and spiritual. Um, a, lim, a, li, a, li, a liminal? liminal space? Liminal, exactly. So it's, it's a liminal... Um, your, your whole body is liminal. You know, you're, you're, you're both existing partly in the... In the um, maybe physical. even fully in the spiritual and fully in the material... Or, or at least and in yet, part. Seemingly, we can only experience the material we world. Can you? Until you know, death. I think I think when you go to church or 
people have spiritual experiences, that sort of thing. You can feel almost as if you're accessing the spiritual world. And, and yet, if, if you meditate, that sort of thing, there's people who have visions of, of what they would claim to be. And yet Richard Dawkins, I think we can note here, Richard Dawkins quite famously says, uh, quite applicably as well, says, drink too much and you will see snakes. Uh, starve too much and you will see visions. And what, what do you Is say? it Richard Dawkins who says that? Or is it Richard you? Dawkins that says that. Okay, fine. Richard Dawkins says, uh, says this and then... He, he goes on to explain, if you, um, y- your body can interact with itself to create these things that you perceive as beyond your common understanding, but that's only because they are not common to your inductive knowledge. They're not something that you've experienced repeatedly and so have become accustomed to. Just as many Christians accept the idea that God, that Jesus was the incarnation, both 100% God and 100% human, and yet the more you think about it, the more impossible and uh, contradictory this idea is, and yet because Christians have heard it so many times, they accept it uh, at face value without questioning it, and it's this this idea that if you see this vision, something beyond the ordinary, it becomes something beyond the ordinary, even if it is purely ordinary, just Mm, just as something impossible and outlandish, when heard enough times, becomes part of the ordinary. And more than that, Richard Dawkins goes on to explain the idea of soul one and soul two. And while he does not believe there are a soul, while while humans have a soul, he does, similar to to, um, Aquinas, not Aquinas, Aristotle, believes that there is a soul of higher order thinking and there there is a lower order thinking. And so... Yeah, this this links nicely back to um, something that we just well skipped over this Aristotle and his his idea of of three sort of different levels of soul. Oh, I forgot we didn't mention that. Sorry. Yeah, so he talks about um, the vegetative soul, which is sort of um, it, it's shared with all living things. So it, I, I suppose this almost links to Aquinas's principle of um, the soul being the first principle of life. So this this vegetative soul is shared with plants, animals, and humans. Then he then he blood says. Of life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Linking it back to that, that's a good, good link. Then the uh, the appetite of soul, um, which which exists in animals, is is what gives us our desires and appetites, right? The passions, um, exactly, our emotions, and that, and and, and as you know, the, the really base guttural things that we'd associate with, um, I don't know, maybe savagery or something like that. Um, and then we have the intellectual. And then we have soul. the intellectual soul, which is which is rational. You know, this conversation we're using, I think Aristotle would say, our intellectual souls quite a lot. You certainly hope so. Maybe <laughs> um, <laughs> we're um, being too generous to ourselves. Um, and he he believes this only belongs to humans. And so I think we can link this to Richard Dawkins a bit. And Dawkins is sort of it's almost ironic. Soul you could one, say. soul two. I don't. I mean, I, you know, I don't think he yeah. doesn't believe it exists. It's just a, a convenient metaphor think, to help people yeah. understand his, his ideas. I think uh, Richard Dawkins would play into the language game of souls because they're so universal to all cultures and all um, and throughout all time. There's been this idea of something bigger than something beyond the sum of your parts. It's this a unique, common theme running through all cultures and all civilizations from all time. I don't think you say all, most, because I think there'd be some think, atheists who would say... No, I don't, think you can, I don't think you can come up with a culture that does not have that as part of its culture. Yeah, I suppose and it's so certainly not it's, a, a, a large-scale culture, because it, it's, it's just very unappealing, thinking. But it, it's, it's a common theme for all civilizations that have ever uh, yeah. risen and fallen. And so Richard Dawkins plays into this, because it's so easy, it's so easy to accommodate people's thinking through this, not yeah. because he believes it exists. 
but just to help other people understand his theories and ideas. Because, yeah, Richard Dawkins is a brilliant orator of ideas. Yeah, a brilliant sure. expressor of ideas. Um, are we going to talk about dualism? I mean, we've already touched on it quite, have quite a lot of Plato. I think we should just mention just that Descartes, Descartes basically brings it up. And then um, some princess has a... Is it print? Yeah, it's like some princess or somebody, some... Anyway, some, what are you trying to say? No, some, some member of the European royalty uh-huh. sends a letter to Descartes about why he's wrong. And then, I just remember that, sorry. That's just something that I remembered from the thing. I can't find... Um... What, well, anyway. <laughs> uh, so, substance dualism Descartes builds on um, in his book, The Meditations. And he says, yes, the soul and the, the, soul and the body are separate. And, it, they, yeah, they can be found in meditations as i mentioned and it's this idea that there's a very great difference between the mind and body because the body is by nature divisible but the mind is not that's to quote uh Descartes. Yeah, so in essence you can cut off your arm but you can't cut your souls into pe- your soul, soul yes it's not like in harry potter where he kills someone your soul splits it's like he would say no there is no dividing of you can't the soul. yeah but you can cut off your arm and still have a still have a soul mm. or still have a mind as yeah it it. yeah and so therefore we have to assume that they're separate entirely and there's no overlap. Mm. I think this is perhaps an, perhaps a stretching the idea. And De- Well, we have to remember that Descartes also says that the interactions between them, since the soul cannot uh, interact with the body th- uh, immaterially, it has to interact materially, yeah. he comes up with this idea of a gland in the back of your head, which yeah. excre- it, uh, excretes hormones or electrical signals. But, I mean, still, you can't interact you, with that, the body. That's just, that's just another step. It doesn't explain how the soul interacts with that gland. I mean, this is going back to the what-how thing that I was talking about earlier. You know, he, he's, he maybe says what the soul does, but he doesn't say how, you know. He, he tries yeah. to explain how by saying there's a little gland in the back well, of your head. Yeah, to quote him, there is a little gland in the brain where the soul <laughs> exercises its functions more particularly than in the other parts of the body. But yeah, I mean, that, that's... A pretty non-answer, really, isn't it? It's it is a bit of a non-answer, but then again, I think we can go back to the point that it is irre- unreason- it's unreasonable yeah. to expect people to be able to disseminate the mysteries yeah. of such yeah. things. Um, so-, so now, uh, you have to remember specifically the language Descartes uses here, talking about the mind being able to attack the body without attacking the mind, and then being entirely separate with no overlap here, mm. except how the mind except where the soul seemingly is able to manifest in a gland and able to influence, it, yeah. influence through a physical, uh, sort of a physical faucet. Mm. On the... Now, yeah. this is important because the biggest criticism of substance dualism... Or comes, a large criticism, anyway, yeah. Or a lo- yeah, one of the larger criticisms comes from uh, Gilbert Ryle, who goes into the semantics of this, uh, of these expressions. yeah. Uh, Descartes uses and uh, to overlay this category error yeah. onto uh, meditations, where he says, "You're miscategorizing the soul and body as separate, as separate things. Yeah. because you you've not they're they're part of a bigger whole. You you've sort of if you think of it as a triangle, you've taken the two cor- bottom two corners of a triangle and said they're separate, without acknowledging that there's a top point at the top that connects them." Mm. Yeah, I think it links to, again, Aristotle's understanding of, of uh, a soul and, and Aquinas as, as more of a holistic um, part of you rather than a distinctive dualist understanding that, um, that Descartes would put forward, or Plato. I, I think it's best to give one of uh, Gilbert Ryle's 
some more accommodating metaphors for the mm, category. Good idea. It's quite a hard idea to um, verbalise. Yeah. So if you want yeah, to... Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll <coughs> use his own... Um, Sorry, I've got a bit of a cold. His own example. <coughs> so uh, he, he, he writes, Suppose a foreign visitor went to Cambridge to look at its sites. He has shown the different colleges, the Fitzwilliam Museum, the library and so on. At the end of the tour, he asks, but where is the university? He is guilty of a category error because he assumes that the university is something separate from another than all those individual individual bits that collectively are the university. So the, the visitor sort of divided up. He's expecting to see this this thing that is the university when we and but in and then he sees all these different parts of the university he's like well where is the university he's not understanding that all those different parts are what the university is so to relate this to the soul Mm. what descartes saying is the soul and the the mind and the body are separate Uh, but what he's really doing is he's gone around and he's seen the fitzwilliam museum he's seen the soul yeah and he's seen some of the 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 colleges colleges, and he said this is the body but he hasn't accepted that actually um whether or not this is true, that they're actually part of a bigger whole. And yeah, because, which is the university. Which is because the, the university and the metaphor, because they're both, they both interact with each other and they both interact with each other and act as one uh, holistic being, which we can see through looking at humans, mm. how they have this connection between their consciousness and their body. When we talked about who am I and uh, where does your mind sit in your body, all these things you can say, it's impossible to accept that there is no overlap between them. And so it's a category error to separate them entirely, as Descartes does. Yeah. So that's what Gilbert Ryle would say, at least. Um, then uh, we, can, we can look at what John Hick has to say. I mean, these are just a few different um, philosophers who have who've more recently commented on the soul. Um, so he, uh, he, uh, he has a similar view to um, Aquinas and Aristotle, um, and I'll quote him. So saying, my soul is not me... Um, he doesn't think that your, you know, your, 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 your identity is contained within your soul. He thinks it, it's a part of your identity. Um, and, and so this can be referred to as soft materialism. Uh, the way the textbook puts it is, um, uh, we are, we're not necessarily, uh, sorry, we are necessarily, necess- uh, we are necess- necessarily, there we go, material beings, the fact that we are that does not mean that we have to be just material beings. So, so, um, so Hick takes this view that, well, yes, we are material. We have a, a spiritual dimension. Uh, we are our bodies, but those bodies have a, a spiritual um, dimension. So, again, similar to um, Aquinas and Aristotle. Now, um, we've talked about behaviours and we talked about Richard Dawkins um, I think we should just move on. We've talked about some objections to them as well. Yeah. So I think should we just now move on to the... Uh, do a question. Well, this one, this one sort of final concluding remark that we, we discussed earlier about um, how... I think we mentioned this in previous podcasts as well in regards to Plato's theory of the forms. How of, often, for me at least, it seems that the philosoph- these philosophers that we are discussing, their soul isn't their starting point. You know, they, they, they just... It, they lever into their theory to make it work. It's not like they, they start off with a preconceived notion of what the soul is and then they build out from there. It's very much that they choose their understanding of, of the soul to fit their worldview. Um, and I think, I mean, it, it feels almost slightly neglected sometimes as, as, a, as a starting point. Um, and, and I mean, I think, you know, 
maybe we can think about it um, ourselves and think, okay, so is our do we if we look at our own understanding of the soul, is that just based off our presuppositions, or is it based off you know genuine exploration of of what you would think the soul is without all these presuppositions? So I think a lot of these philosophers are just taking all of their presuppositions about how the world works and then using that to infer about their soul rather than that, trying to understand their soul before trying to understand the world is that not what we have to do though because mm. if the soul is truly fully a spiritual uh, entity with no interaction or with minimal interaction to the human body and not something that can be understood empirically can we can we assume that it's even reasonable to, to yeah, ask people to do point. anything more than uh, than present their presuppositions as an aspect, uh, and then present them as the soul because that's their best understanding of the soul they can create mm. from all the from all the knowledge and human uh, human experience that they can absorb through reading and through literature and through their own their own personal uh, experiences. Yeah. Now, I think it's probably useful to go over a question. Here. Yeah, I just I agree. We have four questions to go four. over. Uh, I'll read them all out and then we can decide which one we should do. The first one is assess whether substance dualism is a convincing approach to questions of the body and soul. I think we talked about that, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, the second question is quite similar as well. To what extent is Plato's belief in a separate body and soul convincing? I think it's we have kind of a similar question. Well. Um, I like this third one, though. It makes more sense to say, I am a body than I have a body. I mean, this no, is... No, we have talked about we've this. We've talked about this. Yeah, yeah good point. I think the last one is the one we'll do. Religious faith demands belief in a separate body and soul. So religious... Faith demands a belief in a separate body and soul. Discuss which one, which side do you want to take? Uh, I think it. I'll take it. Doesn't. It doesn't require. No, okay. Is this first? Is this first to clarify? We're talking about Abrahamic religions, or mm. religions yeah, I mean, it's the course that we're doing is is um, Christian. Is is on Christianity essentially? No, it's it's Christian philosophy. Christian theology, and then so yeah, I think it's reasonable to assume that what that's talking about is a is a yeah. Christian. Faith demands a belief in a separate body and soul. Now, I don't think it does, and I think we can bring up the examples of um, Aquinas uh, here, namely, and uh, Manichaeism, Gnosticism, and also whether you think they're heretical or not, and also uh, Augustine here. Now, we know what Aquinas would say here, that your soul is merely a building block to your body and is a function of the body that allows you to interact with the spiritual realm, not separate to the body now a quite uh now augustine uh would probably note at this point that humans have fallen humans are not valuable for who they are as a material being because they have no value as a human material being since they are fallen creatures uh from the garden of eden and so and so the soul is separate because the soul cannot be tainted by this um by this issue that we have in our fallen bodies, in our fallen matter. Oh, no, hold on. I disagree Mm -hmm. there. I think, firstly, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, God describes the material world as being very good. You know, in in Genesis, you see Mm -hmm. the creation of of the world with culminating in the creation of man, and God describing that as very good. Um, And... And I think that you're you're saying that the spiritual aspect of ourselves hasn't been tainted by... um, by by this sort of physical fullness i think i don't think that's true i think that the physical fullness is sorry the physical fullness does taint the um 
our spiritual experience. It, it breaks our connection with God. It, it causes issues between us and our relationship. And if, and if you think that relationship so, is the spirit relating to God, then you can at least say that the connection's been damaged. Yes, go on. Arthur. And so I think what you've just done is you've uh, aptly argued to why we cannot have a separate body and soul. Because if we had a separate body and soul, our soul would not be tainted by this material wealth. And so we would have no reason to not be instantly connected mm. to God. And so this tainting of the soul indicates, at least to, to the obvious, the, the obvious answer to that is an indication that they are, that the body and soul are uh, intertwined because ultimately they have to be connected for there to be some sort of taint to move across from the fallen body and fallen matter to that of the soul. I think, I think you're, you're um, maybe conflating um, a total la- separation and a total lack of connection because we are separate beings, you know, me and you, I, I think we are anyway. Mm-hmm. However, I can still influence you. You know, if I, if I punch you, I might break your nose, for example. You know, that's mm-hmm. going to influence you. However, we are separate beings. So I still think that as the material body doing sin sinning and stuff i can break the soul's nose we are separate we're separate things and but i can still damage the soul regardless of if i'm um if i'm if i'm material or not now obviously that's not an argument to say that they must be separate it's more an argument saying they they could be separate and now i think an important point to point out here is that that what you're assuming there in that metaphor is that both the soul and the body are of the same matter, of the same material, mm. uh, to, to, for want of a better word. And I think to, to even assume that the soul and body have, are able to interact through the same medium that is the equivalent of punching yeah, uh, yeah, that's a flesh point, to yeah. flesh, is to assume that the, the soul has some ability to interact with the material world. And once it can interact with the material world... Yeah, um, it is able to be tainted through material things, and so and, and also if it is, so it cannot be separate to the body. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah, uh, it cannot be separate to the body if it is not. Yeah, well, if it's separate to the body, it doesn't have to be affected by the body because it's in this beyond spiritual realm, yeah. realm that's directly there is like a direct line to God and pure goodness, and yet it's able to be tainted. So mm. it must, in some way relate to Aristotle's connection I think it depends on on how we understand separate you know is it separate as in I am separate from somebody living on Mars you know obviously there's no well I don't think Mm -hmm. there's anyone living on Mars um but say there was I'm 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 pretty well separated from them you know I can basically I cannot influence (laughs) that person on Mars do we understand it as that or do we understand it as we are separate beings you know we're sitting right next to each other but you know we have separate um characteristics separate um, intentions. Would, that would that sort of not, thing. or would that both? Would that not second separation also affect the former? How do you mean? Well, that person on Mars would also have the same uh, separation as you and I sitting next to each other. Just a large no, because distance. I can influence you, whereas I can't influence the person on Mars, and yet we're still. Ah, separate. I see what you mean. Now, I think both of these fall again prey to the idea that, regardless of the distance, there's still an ability for those two that person on Mars and you to interact if the mm. right circumstances were to arise. Yeah. And so that assumes that the soul must be intrinsically linked to the body in the way that all humans are linked by their, their biological, by the biological um, aspects that make them human. Yeah. Link, links all of human as humanity as a race in the same way that the soul and body 
if they are two separate beyond more than two separate races, two separate uh two separate realms, two mm. separate worlds even apart, there is no way for them to interact. And yet assuming that the the soul is on the same world in the same realm as us, it's almost more rational to assume that it is part of you individually than floating around separately at a larger distance. I think certainly we could, we could it, maybe I wouldn't go as far as saying more rational, but I think it certainly it is it is a potential understanding. So I think certainly the statement religious faith demands belief in a separate body and I think soul. We have to say that's, it that's overreaching. Yeah, you could say it's certainly compatible. The the belief uh, in a separate body and soul is compatible with religious faith, but it's by no means a necessity. So yeah, so I think. That's all, That's ultimately our conclusion. And mm. while Paul does talk about the separation, Jesus does not. So even mm. in the Bible, there's this. Conflict. I mean, I think I think it's, it's based on interpretation. Mm-hmm. Though. Yeah, I so think even in the Bible, there's this conflict between its uh, substance dualism and substance monoism, and so that's why you have some people who are Christians believing in uh, you know a united not bold. No, I think that most of them would believe in souls. It's just are they a part of of, of you or are they, yeah, are they so, a separate, separate thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that sort of really brings us to a conclusion. That brings us to conclusion. Yeah. Thank you so yeah, much thank for you listening. listening. That's the end of it. Um, next, yeah. week, next week, we're going to move on to the topic of oh, existence the existence of God. of God based on arguments of observation. Yeah. So can we observe God acting in the world to such an extent that it's impossible to deny his existence? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some really, really interesting philosophers and theologians yeah. are going to come out of this. Good discussions uh, as well. Really, really good discussions. Hopefully. Um, so yeah we should be able to get that out next week yeah if hopefully well. if I'm not well I, I don't so know I'll see, yeah. Yeah. So I'll see you then yeah. bye bye see ya thank you